0: Bible reading this morning is Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17, and it can be found on page 1184. Colossians 3, starting at verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone forgive as the lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity let the peace of christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful let the message of christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another With all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning again. How are you going? Good. Great to be with you. Keep that passage open. I wonder whether you've ever felt like your life is a little average. Just me. Um, I grew up with all sorts of aspirations, hopes and dreams, uh, and none of them were average. Uh, From the earliest age, I wanted to be a jet fighter pilot. Um, And then a little bit older, I wanted to play for Arsenal. Then when I started to go for school, I wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge one day. Um, When I got into ministry, I thought I'd preach all around the world and fly in a private jet. I know, I'm crazy. (laughs) Treasurer, budget, nope, not going to happen. And then when I got married, I wanted to be the best husband ever. Recent crushing reflections on my life uh, have meant that Some of my life has been extraordinary, sure. But on the whole, from one angle, you could look at my life, I could look at my life, and it feels pretty average on the whole. Obviously, I'm not a jet fighter pilot. Um, I play very average five-a-side soccer on a Monday night. I sub off after about five minutes of a 20-minute half. Um, The truth is I'm not really made for academia although you know I, I appreciate it um, and the truth is I'm a pretty average husband I don't know what it is but a bin looks so heavy and a couch looks so pleasing um, but for your information I'm still aiming to be the best father ever because Naomi and I are pregnant yeah isn't that exciting thank you very much um, and by the way, we're just a few days shy of somebody else in our congregation. Uh, Trisha and Adrian are also pregnant, um, which is very exciting for them. So when you see Trisha today, give her a hug. Um, but it's possible, if you look at my life from a particular angle, or if I look at my life from a particular angle, what I do, who I am, how, where I live, it can it can feel very average. It can feel very average. And indeed, I'm a part of, the generation called millennials, uh, a whole generation that's been labeled as having delusions of grandeur and confidence in abilities they don't yet possess, if they ever will, uh, who think they're special and as a result are unable to be happy happy with any career or opportunity that they're given. Um, We hit 30, we wake up, and we realize actually we're pretty average. But I was struck this week as I was having yet another crisis of averageness by the fact that, as a Christian, as somebody who trusts and follows Jesus, I am, you are called to be and do something extraordinary. If you're a Christian, you are called to be and to do something extraordinary. And that is that you are a part of God's family. You are a part of God's family. Have you ever dreamt of being a royal? Being a part of the royal family and what that would feel like? (laughs) No? No one? It's just me. I daydream about this all the time. What's that? I would. I would. I would. I'm a millennial. This The church, God's family, is the royal family. And you're a part of it. And as a part of God's family, not only are you just a part of a family, part of God's family, but you do what God's family would do. Think about that for a moment. Um, I, as I get older, I'm becoming more and more like my father. There are pros and cons to that. uh, Some of which are really obvious, the cons. Um, It's here. But since I have my father's DNA, I do all sorts of things. I just have mannerisms that I've picked up from him that I just do. I'm becoming more and more like my father. The same is true in God's family. We do things like him because we are becoming like him. And by definition, they are extraordinary things. Because they are God-like things. We, do, we are called to be like God and to do God-like things. You are so inspired and so divine and so different. It's like you're from another planet. You remember our vision Johnny mentioned at the beginning of our service. We are sent. We are God's people wherever we are this year. And we're sent to bring heaven, God's family culture, into this earth. We're called to bring heaven to earth in whatever we do, wherever we are, And we do it together. And so this morning, I want to talk about uh, what the first place we are sent to is. And that is to one another. We're sent to the church. We're called to be God's family wherever we are. And the first place we are sent to is to one another, to his people. So I want to talk about that today. And the structure of my talk, the the sermon, the teaching this morning is like this. First, we're going to look at who is God's family. Secondly, we're going to look at what's it look like to be God's family? Uh, What do we do? What's it look like to be a part of God's family? And then thirdly, how do we maintain family? How do we keep this family together? So firstly, who is God's family? And I'll start my timer. Uh, (laughs) who, Who is God's family? There is a remarkable description of the Colossian church in verses 11 and 12 of that passage. And we're just going to look from verse 11 onwards in this passage today. Verse 11 says, Here, in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Here, Paul, in his mind's eye, as he's writing this letter to the Colossians, he's thinking of them. And perhaps he's seeing their faces and remembering their names. And he says, here there is no, and then he lists every description of a person that you would find in that community on that day. You would find Gentiles or Greeks and Jews and circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. You would find them in that church there. But he says here there is no. What's interesting is that these divisions were really important in the Greco-Roman world of which Paul was writing. Uh, This was how society worked. People drew lines around their culture and race and belief systems in order to distinguish people from people in a prideful way, in order to hold something above another person. And the point is that all of these terms could be used as pejoratives. It could be, they could be used to kind of name-call and point and look down on someone. For example, the Greeks. Well, they're the progressives. They're the educated and the civilized. They own the world. I don't know why I'm putting on a British accent, but it just seems fitting. Um, and, and terribly Greek. Uh, and then there's the Jews. You know, they're the conservatives. The traditionalists, they hold on to the past. They're God's chosen ones, God's special people. And then there's the barbarians. They're the uncivilized. Then there's the Scythians. They're the extreme of the uncivilized. One Jewish historian called them no better than wild beasts. And then there's the slaves. You can imagine the slaves looking at the free people and going, oh, they're the upper class. And the, the, the free, looking at the slaves and thinking, they're that class. The point is, these divisions create pride as they hold contempt for each other because of their education, their belief systems, their political persuasions, their heritage, their background, their religious practices or adherence, their work, their careers their abilities, their lifestyles. And Paul says, here in the church, there's none of that. No more, there's none of that. The only thing you can take pride in is Jesus. Nothing else matters. If you have Jesus, you're a part of God's family, and all the other distinctions, in comparison, fade away. See, I think still today, we hold on to, we hang our hats on some of these things on our lifestyles, on our career, on our wealth, on our abilities, on our political persuasions. Um, And what's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't just strip these things away and say, you're all family because you're human. You know, you've all got that in common. Rather, he gives them something else to hang their hat on together. At the end of verse 11, he says, Christ is all and is in all. In other words, you are above average, you are important, you are significant, all of you are, but it's not because you're, you're progressive or it's not because you're traditional, it's because you're in Christ and you can take pride in the fact that you're one with the very Son of God and the person sitting next to you is one with the very Son of God and because of you have that in common, that thing which is of infinite value and worth nothing else matters. None of your divisions matter. You're a part of God's family because you are in Christ. Christ is everything and he is in everyone in his church. Uh, Paul continues to thrash this out in verse 12. Have a look. He uses three precious designations. He says the church, the Colossian church, is God's chosen people. They're holy and they're dearly loved. This is the language that God had for Israel and for them alone. Um, and now he's using it for outsiders, for Greeks, for uncircumcised people, for barbarian Scythians, for slaves. Uh, in other words, Paul is saying Israel is being replaced by the church, those who are in Christ. Think about that for the moment. God chose Israel, and they were his special possession. And he made them holy. That means he gave them the responsibility of showing what he looks like to the rest of the world. And then they're chosen holy, and they're dearly loved. The reason they're chosen, the reason they're set apart, is because he dearly loves them. And what's even more significant than those terms belonging to Israel is that as you read the Gospels you realize that Jesus was the true and better Israel. And he was the one that God ultimately chose. He was the one that ultimately showed the world what God looks looks like. And he was the one of whom God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. And so when we are in Christ, we get what Christ got. We're chosen, we're holy, we're dearly loved. And so you might be Australian, you might be of another nationality, you might be of mixed descent, you might be uh, progressive or conservative, you might vote differently from one another in a few months' time, you might have different backgrounds and education, some of you might be more civilised than others. Uh, Some of you might have a high income, some of you a low income, some of you no income. But if you trust or follow Jesus, you are dearly loved by God and you are in God's family. And that makes you extraordinary. That makes your life above average. At this point in the sermon, you might like to put your hand on your neighbor's shoulder and say, we are family, if you do that. We are family. But what, what does God's what's it mean to be in God's family? The second thing, if you're in Christ, you're in God's family. But what it means is you're meant to behave like you're in God's family. God's family behave like their family. So what does God's family look like? Well, verse 12 continues, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's you, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The first thing to say is that we had a bare family resemblance. All of these five terms, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, are used elsewhere to describe God. They used to describe God the Father and God the Son. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he described himself like this The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious. And then, as you read about Jesus' life in the Gospels, uh, this is a quick search of the word compassion in, in just the book of Matthew alone. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. A few chapters later, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Then again, later on, when Jesus called his disciples to him, he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me three days and they've had no food to eat. This is a God of compassion. Uh, We're a little inoculated, I think, in our place, day and age uh, to these qualities of relationship partly because I think if you walk down in a Chatswood Chase today and you happen to be an awkward person and you bumped into a stranger and you said, what do you think makes a great person, a great friend? They would probably list one of these five things, if not most of them. They'd say, oh, I like someone who's kind to me. I like someone who's patient with me, who puts up with me. Uh, and so we're a little bit inoculated to these values. It seems that we all value them and it just, it's, we take it for granted. And so why does Paul even mention them? Why are they special? Well, the point is, if Paul hadn't mentioned them here in Colossians, we would not have these values in our society today. The English historian Tom Holland, outspokenly not a Christian, in an article for the New Statesman magazine, said, it took me a long time to realize my morals are not Greek or Roman, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. He, says, he said, the more you live in the minds of Romans and Greeks, the more alien and the more frightening, frightening they seem to come. And what becomes most frightening is a quality of callousness that is terrifying because it's completely taken for granted. Nobody questions it. Caesar, by some accounts, is slaughtering a million Gauls and enslaving another million in the cause of boosting his political career. Imagine if somebody tried to do that. And far from feeling in any way embarrassed about this, he's promoting it. And when he hosts his triumph, people are carrying billboards boasting about how many people he's killed. I'm not an heir of the Greeks or Romans, nor of Islam, Tom Holland writes, but actually in every way I'm a Christian. And speaking of Paul's letters, he says, this is not a very lengthy amount of writing, but compacted in it is almost everything that explains the modern world. These qualities are not of the golden Roman age, nor are they the temperaments of the Greek gods. They come from one place, one family tree, and that's the Christian God. And we are to bear his character. Paul says we are to put these things on That's the second thing to say here. Not only do they belong to one family, and that means that if culture, by the way, our post-Christian culture goes in any other direction, we're still to hold on to these values. And where to put them on, he says. God may have been sovereign in choosing us, in making us holy and in dearly loving us. That's his choice. But there's also human responsibility, which is to daily put these virtues on. We could take a little moment to think about how we're going in each of those virtues. For example, compassion. We know what it looks like. Perhaps a question to ask ourselves about our own compassion is Do I experience and display concern for another's misfortune? Do I experience, do I feel in my guts and display concern for another's misfortune? Or of kindness? That's the quality of being helpful. Fred, this is for you, but the word in Greek is also used for wine. And it's used for wine which has grown mellow with age and lost its harshness, kindness. A question you could ask is, am I a harsh person or am I helpful? Have I developed with age? Am I a harsh person or am I helpful? Gentleness. Aristotle said, a gentle person is someone so self controlled that they're always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Think about the last time you were angry. Was it at the right time? So, what does God's family look like? It looks like Him, it looks like Jesus. We bear His family characteristics. Um, but there's another factor which comes up in verse 15. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. I call this factor of the family the stickiness factor. Um, what is the peace of Christ? Some people would say the peace of Christ is a, a, a fluffy feeling on the inside occasionally. Um, the peace of Christ is actually more about a relational peace. It's about harmony. It's about two things coming together and being held strongly together. It's stickiness. And the peace of Christ is the great work where God reconciled the world to himself through his son, through Christ, by not counting our sins against us. He made two competing, opposing enemies one. That's the peace of Christ. It's relational togetherness. And Paul says, let that story rule in your hearts. That word for rule, I think about tennis, as I say it, it comes from the sporting arena. It's about an umpire calling shots. In other words, what Paul wants us to do in our family, how we look like family, is that we let that story that God has made peace with us, we let that story call the shots in our own community with one another. We go, you know what, God is always working for peace and was always working for peace. God went to every end to make sure peace happened. And that's how we think in our relationships. You know, I think this is going to be very important for us in the coming months as we're between senior ministers. It's not as if this church hasn't been there before and we will get through it and it will be fine. But during that period, emotions will run high and there will be differences of opinion and thoughts on what we should be doing and perhaps a sense of unease or unsteadiness but we are to let the peace of christ rule in our hearts that means the most determining factor even when we have our disagreements is that is how our father acted he's always moving toward the other not away he's always looking for a way for peace So, we are family. If we're in Christ, we're family. What's family look like? It looks like God. It looks like a community that is sticky. It's always together. Well, how do we maintain that family? How do we maintain that togetherness? Verse 16, Paul writes, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, Literally, he says, let it... Let it make its home among you. Let the message of Christ make its home among you. Um, I've been told that babies are pretty resilient, that they're pretty tough. Um, But there are things I know Naomi and I will need to do in order to keep the baby alive and indeed to let it have its home with us. We're going to have to feed it, uh, we're going to have to listen to it for its needs. I'm making this up, by the way, I don't really know. You can fill me in afterwards. Um, What I do know is that we'll have to give it space in our home. Already things are strangely moving out of my office. Um, I've been told apparently something else is going to happen in that space soon. Um, Already it's taking up my weekends, this baby. It's not even here yet. And it has all my time, all my energy, and yes, all my money. (laughs) The idea here in verse 16 is that we let the grace of God, the story of God, the story of Jesus, that message of the gospel, particularly the truth that we're undeserving, but God accepts us and loves us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is, we let that message make its home amongst us. It's got to become part of the family. It's got to be what our family thinks about, spends its time on, money on, energy on. That message must grow and be developed amongst us. And Paul had a bunch of simple ideas of how we do that. He said, teach one another, admonish one another, sing songs that tell that story, that keep that story alive in your community. Um, I want to finish with a story uh, because I think we know what it looks like to let the message of Christ dwell amongst us richly on a Sunday. Matt gets up and he preaches. We sing some, The other Matt gets up and sings songs to us. Um, we read the Bible, we pray together. Um, but I think Paul is talking to all of us when he says, let the message of Christ dwell amongst you richly. And I, I have a story recently that um, that has been... I'll tell you in a moment. As many of you know about... And yeah, Paul and Carolyn said when I went over to their house recently, they said I could share with them just the encouraging time that I had with them and a bit about their story. As many of you know, Paul had five heart, heart bypasses in an operation recently. And I went over after my holidays to their house and I thought I was being good pastor Matt, you know? God's sending me to them to encourage uh, those of weak heart, you know? I thought I was being sent to them. How the opposite was true. God was sending them to me. We sat in their living room on the first day of Chinese New Year. I had a cup of herbal tea in my hand, and they shared their story with me for about an hour, that, that story. And the story was that, you know, the bypass had come up out of the blue. Carolyn herself was ill the day she was meant to drive Paul to hospital, and so she couldn't be there with him. Um, It wasn't until Paul was in hospital that they told him he needed five heart bypasses. A crazy story. But interwoven into that story, as naturally as anything, was their experience of God's comfort and love, of his goodness and his faithfulness to them. And it was peppered with stories of how people were praying praying for them, even though they didn't know that they needed to be prayed for and that they had words of encouragement and assurance that God would get them through and that he was with them. And time and time again, they'd say, God is so good and faithful. And in that moment, they were letting the story of God's grace and his continuing grace in their lives live amongst us. They were stuck at home, but they were sent to encourage me in that moment. So you might be someone who's in fear of living an average life. or Maybe you're stuck somewhere or don't have much ability to do much. Maybe you've hung your hat on something for so many years. You've held your significance and your importance based on something and that's been recently taken away from you. Or you know how thin and fickle it is. Remember, if you trust in Christ, you're part of God's family. You're called to be and do extraordinary things. To be like God and to do God-like things. God's family are sent to one another to behave like God's family. So we're sent to one another to be God's family to one another. Let me pray that that would take place even this week. Let me pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have invited us to be a part of your family through Jesus Christ and that you are making us like your family as we become more and more like Jesus Christ each and every day. May we know that we are sent to one another this year, that we're called to be and to act like God's family to one another. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen.